Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Don't forget to subscribe to learn whenever a new episode drops. Today's guest is Chef Michael Hunter, co-owner of Antler Kitchen and Bar. He's a hunter, he's a forager, and his latest book is The Hunter Chef. Hunt, fish, and forage in over 100 recipes. If you're a fan of meat, let me tell you this episode is for you. And if you're not a fan of meat, well, uh, well, we'll be talking about you as well. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Let me start here. I'm seeing a lot of headlines that well, make me think that meat is kind of under siege almost now more than ever. What is your sense of that? Um, there's definitely a trend about plant-based foods and and um, and products. Um, you know, I think under siege might be a, a bit dramatic, but I don't know. You know, I don't follow the meat news, I guess, as much as you do. So um, I might be out of the loop. Yeah, well, well, let me put a couple, I guess, questions to you, because I know you're focused on, on doing what you do, and then there are other people who are focused in, you know, going in other directions here. Uh, there was a headline in, in Bloomberg News, other news outlets, saying that uh, moving forward, uh, beef is going to be considered a luxury item. This is the head of a big European meat processor speaking, and he said beef is not going to be super climate friendly. So the basic idea about emissions and, and taxes and so forth. Uh, what are your thoughts as someone who, who cooks uh, a whole lot of meat? Uh, obviously, you know, your recipes in your cookbook and your restaurant as well. Uh, what what do you think when you when you hear that sort of news? Um, you know, in, in the restaurant industry, I can definitely tell you that I have seen the, uh, the meat prices climbing um you know i think that has uh, a wide range of factors um you know increasing costs of of uh fuel grain uh labor um you know some of these main things are really driving the cost up um you know i i i, I do think our system is a little broken um hmm. you know our focus has been on you know factory farming um, you know, animal products and vegetable products. So, you know, I think really the factory farming industry is being attacked, um, you know, on the meat side and, um, you know, the, the idea of replacing it with, um, you know, plant-based products that are also factory farmed, I don't think is the answer either. Hmm. So you're talking about the beyond meat type products. I know there's been a lot of discussion of Oh well, hold on a second. This is still processed food, and the talk about the degree of of salt and other content that's in it. Yes. So when you talk about uh, about your approach to meat in general in your cookbook, uh, what you're doing in your kitchen, how would you articulate your philosophy of of I, I don't know if the carnivore diet is the right way to phrase it, but what is your general <laughs> approach uh, to meat and sustainability with meat and and just meat as a culinary experience? Um, I think there needs to be more of a, a focus on, you know, getting back to the family run sustainable farm. Um, you know, a lot of my diet at home is wild food. Uh, a lot of that is hunted meat, um, and wild fish. Um, but we also have uh, a pretty large, uh, vegetable garden for living in, um, the city of Toronto. Hmm. Um, you know, we, you know, we're in, uh, you know, the northwest part of the city, um, you know, we don't have a huge backyard, but, you know, uh, I'd say maybe a quarter of my backyard is taken up by gardens. So, um, 
you know, I know a lot of people that live in buildings don't have that luxury. Um, but I think there needs to be more of a focus on, um, you know, growing your own food, um, you know, focusing on, um, on food that is sustainably grown, whether that's in a farm, uh, or sustainably fished, um, you know, or, or sustainably harvested, um, you know, from the wild, uh, and, you know, move away from factory farming. Cause I think it's, it's factory farming as a whole that's, that's creating, um, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, environmental problems and, and other problems in our society. I mean, you're really talking about sustainability issues and yet you have had people who have protested you. You have an activist protest outside your restaurant because of your commitment mm -hmm. to cooking with meat. And yet what I'm hearing from you is, is a very sort of moderate approach uh, to involving meat in the diet. Uh, I guess these are people who are just flat out opposed to eating meat in general here. But, but one would think uh, there's a bit of a middle ground. I mean, you seem to be talking about almost a middle ground here. Um. You know, and I think that the people protesting my restaurant were not interested in having an intellectual dialogue with me, right. um, even though we offered that on several occasions, um, you know, because they, they had one agenda and they weren't interested in any discussions about, uh, you know, other alternatives or ways to meet in the middle. It was, uh, you know, go vegan or go home. Um, and, you know, for me, that doesn't inspire uh, change. It didn't inspire, um, you know, really anyone to join their cause. Uh, and for them, which they learned, it, it uh, created the opposite effect and turned, you know, most people against them. So, um, you know, if they wanted to talk about, uh, you know, animal rights reform when it came came to farming or, uh, you know, slaughterhouses and abattoirs and, uh, you know, government policies around the treatment of animals, you know, I would have uh, supported their cause. But um, when they try and force the whole world to, to you know, have a vegan diet um, that is, you know, sustained from sustain, uh, factory farming and monocropping, things like soy and um, using palm oil and things that are really destructive for the planet, mm. um, you know, I kind of think they're pretty misguided. Yeah, that's interesting. So this happened back in 2018, and it was something of a something of a bit of a cultural moment. I would say at least people who live in the GTA would go, "Oh yeah, I remember that." It was sort of in the news, and there's a lot of headlines. Vegans came to protest uh, uh, your restaurant Antler, and then you weren't going to put up with it. So when you knew they were coming, you you sort of uh, very uh, very elaborately carved meat right in the front window, and they had to be visually subjected to it. And I guess that was triggering for them. And, and one, one phrase that you said in one of those stories, as I was rereading, it really speaks out to me. You said, we won't change, meaning, well, I'm, I'm still yeah. going to do this. I don't care if you guys are protesting. And well, I know the pandemic has been very difficult for restaurants. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but in general, it seems like you haven't changed. You're still there. You're still standing. People are still coming <laughs> to the restaurant. Um, you know, we really believe in what we do and we think we're doing the right thing. Um, uh, we buy, you know, all of our products uh, from little suppliers, family-run farms, um, you know, Canadian companies. It's it's very important to us um, and it's what we believe in. And, um, you know, we're, we're passionate about it. We, we try and do it, you know, uh, the best we can, um, you know, and it's it's proving to work for us. Tell me a little bit more about what you're saying there about about soy-based items and so forth that are actually uh, not so great for the system, not so great for the planet, certain things that are connected with a vegan diet. 
Um, well, I'm not an expert on the subject. I've done a little bit of, uh, you know, reading and, you know, my own research on it. Um, but, you know, monocrop farming uh, is proven to be bad for the environment when you take, you know, hundreds of thousands or, you know, millions of acres uh, and cover it with the same type of plant. Um, it's bad for the environment. And, um, you know, old practices of farming, uh, you know, utilizes crop rotations and, um, you know, smaller uh, plots of farms that are constantly being rotated and, you know, fertilized with natural products. Um, and, you know, when, when you monocrop, uh, you know, large services of land, you come in contact with all kinds of, uh, you know, horticultural problems with uh, insects um, and then need to use um, pesticides and, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, growth hormones and for chemical fertilizers for the plants and things like that. Um, so it's just my understanding that, um, you know, these types of, of farming methods that are being utilized to create, um, you know, soy based products and, 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 uh, these, you know, alternative proteins, um, is actually, you know, bad for the environment. And like I said, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I know a, a little bit about it. And, um, you know, I don't think that a complete switch, um, you know, to, to, to factory farming, um, you know, vegetable products for alternative proteins is really the best answer either. Michael, what's your sense of what the state of hunting foraging is across Ontario, across Canada, when it comes to people doing it to provide, uh, food for themselves? Um, I'd have to look at the statistics, but what I, I have heard that statistically the numbers of uh, new hunters, um, is going up. Um, there are, there is numbers available with the, um, uh, miniature, ministry of natural resources, uh, where we could get exact numbers. But, um, from what I understand, the, um, the number of new hunters wanting to get their hunting license is on the rise. Um, I think the pandemic, uh, created a lot of awareness for people, um, to really kind of, uh, get more concerned about where their food is coming from and what they would do. <laughs> if our supply chains collapsed, wow. <laughs> um, you know, you saw with the, you know, the toilet paper buying frenzy, people right. wanted security. Um, you know, it was a psychological thing that, that people wanted some security um, with, you know, they heard toilet paper was running out. And uh, another thing that you couldn't purchase at the store was um, glass canning jars with the metal twist right. lid uh, for preserving, you know, peaches and tomato sauce and uh, canned goods uh, to can at home. Uh, it was you know almost impossible to find these jars because people were uh, frantically buying things to preserve food. Um, so I think there there definitely is a shift, um, you know, back to um, where we came from, which is hunting and gathering. I think people are a bit more interested in it. Um, you know, mushroom foraging is becoming really popular. Um, there's all kinds of uh, you know social media groups and clubs that are popping huh. up. Uh, you know, on Facebook and sites like that, where you can, uh, you know, just join up, uh, sign up to learn about um, foraging. Um, you know, it's it's uh, in the restaurant industry. I've I've seen it with other restaurants in Toronto, at least. Um, you know, a lot more focus on uh, wild game ingredients um, and foraged uh, mushrooms, wild leeks. Um, you know, people are really seem to be uh, moving back towards wanting to. Uh, uh, you know, be a part of, uh, you know, their, their food cycle. 
In what way do you think this is something that, that can be broad-based? And in what way is it a, a sort of boutique niche thing that, that, that only you know, a certain type of person can take up. One thing that I find really interesting, we have a couple of Jamie Oliver cookbooks at home, and I was really intrigued to learn about how he's really big on the movement of just getting people in England, I guess people everywhere in the world, but particularly England saying, you know, we want, you know, regular folks of all walks of life, all income brackets, all jobs, learning how to cook healthy, basic meals at home. And, and I got to say, as someone who is not a very good cook, I'm like, this is kind of cool. Like, I, I find it not intimidating to get one of those four-ingredient cookbooks and work your way up and just kind of learn. And, yeah. and I find it kind of empowering and so forth. And I feel like Jamie Oliver feels he's made some momentum on that. But, you know, it's still a, a, a difficult push. How is that situation unfolding, uh, do you think, in Canada? Um, like I said, I think, I think people are really becoming more interested about where their food's coming from. I think, um, you know, with... Uh, the pandemic and, and an illness that's out there, I think people might be focusing more about uh, eating healthier and living a healthier lifestyle. Um, you know, I think as a chef, um, we're always searching for, you know, for the best tasting ingredients to start with. And um, it makes my job a lot easier if I'm starting out with, uh, you know, an amazing tasting uh, tomato, um, you know, that's grown in mm -hmm. Ontario or grown in my backyard. Uh, that's ripened in the sun and has never been in the fridge and is is you know wonderfully sweet versus something that's uh you know pale pink and you know ripened on a truck uh from mexico to toronto so um i, I think you know um for people that that are you know new to cooking or learning to cook or you know not as confident in the kitchen i think uh you know starting with you know really great ingredients um, in the beginning is, is a, is a great help, um, to making your food taste good because you have to do little, you know, you don't have to, you, you don't have to do a lot to it. Right. Right. And Michael, I want to go back to something you were saying about, about hunters, hunters in Ontario, hunters across Canada. Um, because when you mentioned vegans protesting your restaurant, you said, well, I'm not so sure if they were actually interested in having sort of a moderate uh, conversation. And when you talk about hunters, I also think of guys with guns, guys with guns going out into the woods, firing guns. And yeah. you also go, well, hold on a second. That itself is a conversation that gets very heated, politicized. It, it always factors into Canadian federal elections. It did the last time around and very similar, yeah. perhaps around what you're saying about the vegan versus meat. You can have guns versus anti-guns. And yet you were simply talking about hunting culture, which invariably, you know, a lot of it will involve uh, firearms as, as sustainability and, you know, being aware of, uh, you know, what you're putting into your body in terms of where you're sourcing your food from and so forth. How does that all factor into this? I mean, what would you say to people who right away just say no guns? And that is how they kind of, uh, yeah. put the wall up with that conversation. Um, it's hard to have those conversations with people that, that don't want to have the conversation. <laughs> There's, um, you know, especially people in cities, uh, they don't like guns, uh, because guns are the root of a lot of the violence that's in the city. Right. Um, you know, the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, um, the violence that's happening in the city with, with guns, uh, is gun crime. And, uh, these guns are being ob obtained through illegal sources. Um, and a lot of people don't actually know, uh, how strict our gun control is in Canada for, for guys like me that want to go out and, you know, buy a shotgun to hunt, uh, ducks and geese or to buy a rifle to go shoot a deer. Um, it's, it's a very, uh, difficult process to go through. Um, so I think, you know, really, uh, highlighting, you know, what our licensing system is like in Canada, 
um, and, you know, talking to people about, you know, what I need to do to obtain a firearms license uh, is quite rigorous. Um, but, you know, people that don't want to have the conversation and just believe guns are bad, it's, it's hard to educate those people and have an intellectual dialogue because they just don't want to hear it. Guns are bad. Um, and, you know, that's how they feel. And, and not, you know, not a lot will, will change that, I think, um, you know, until until something's done about the gun crime that's that's in this country. Um, you know, the licensing system, you know, I think it'd be interesting to talk about a little bit. Um, uh, you have to take a firearms training and safety course. And it's it's a, a one day course um, where it's a written and practical test in front of an instructor. Uh, for safety, and you need to know all the laws about, you know, storage, transportation, um, there's handling of the firearms, working with an instructor, proving that you are safe and can handle a firearm. Um, and then there's the ap actual application. So once you pass these two tests, you get an application to take home, uh, you have to fill out, you need uh, references, um, you know, someone that's known you for several years. Um, you actually need your spouse to sign off on your application and put right. your phone number. Um, and if you live alone, uh, you have to list uh, a previous spouse or, you know, husband or, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend um, and list their phone number in the last two years. Lots of hoops to um, jump through. And lots of hoops. To, and from my experience, the RCMP actually call your spouse or call your, uh, you know, ex-wife or girlfriend uh, and speak to them. And, you know, until you go through all of these processes, you can't get a firearms license. Um, and without a firearms license, you can't go into a store or, or, and even look at and the, the firearms or hold them and, and, you know, let alone try and even purchase one. So, um, you know, I think there needs to be a lot of uh, education and awareness around firearms licensing in Canada um, for people to actually, you know, understand um, you know, what's going on and, and, and the, the fact that, you know, the crime that's in Toronto and, you know, Canada really needs to be addressed um, to solve the issues because, you know, creating more laws for guys like me, um, and it's not really, it's not helping. And statistically, it's showing that it's not helping our gun crime in the city. One interesting other sort of curious confluence of issues is that when it comes to a, a lot of hunting, uh, a, a lot of First Nations people throughout the country, a lot of Indigenous persons, uh, they like to do different uh, ways of sourcing their meat, which again kind of butts up against people's perspectives towards uh, hunting and you know other political issues as well. Do you have any thoughts on 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 how First Nations in Canada are going about uh, procuring their meat? No, I you know I think that you know I use a lot of the same methods that uh, you know uh, Indigenous cultures are using for hunting now. I also hunt with a bow and arrow. Uh, a crossbow um i use shotguns and rifles and and things like that to uh to source my meat um and you know it's you know historically um you know we're all descendants of hunters and i think it is you know foolish um to think that hunting is is bad and we need to stop hunting and um you know it has you know uh you know traditional and historical kind of values that uh um, I, I think, you know, need to be cherished and, and held on to as opposed to, um, you know, pushed away. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. When you talk about uh, going out and getting your own meat, is this just for personal consumption or is this some of the meat that your customers uh, eat at Antler? No, so it's actually illegal for me to sell meat uh, that I've hunted myself. So, oh, no way. Um, there's some public health laws around that. And then there's also, um, 
laws uh, against the sale of uh, wild game. Wait, wait, what, what do you think about that? Because just uh, recently for Thanksgiving weekend, we had a brisket that came mm-hmm. from a cow. We, we were up at a rural property that came from a cow that had been across the street. Now, of course, the proper, I'm going to get my terms wrong, but the proper abattoir stuff was done. And I know there's rules and protocols and it happened and so forth. But then the meat was shared with us and we ate the meat. And it's also kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, and what if it had happened to have been a restaurant? And, you know, we charge for all of that <laughs> and so forth. I mean, I, I, I find that kind of odd. Like, it's nice to know there's rules yeah. that someone just can't randomly, you know, get any roadkill they find and slap it on a table and so forth. But you're also a professional. Yeah. So I would think that surely there sh- <laughs> should be a framework where, uh, if you, I don't know if you want to, but a framework where you could actually provide the meat that you've hunted for customers. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, um, that would, that would be something I would, I would love to do. Um, you know, there needs to be a lot of regulations in place to make sure, um, that, uh, it's, you know, it would be sustainable and, um, you know, a big part of, uh, of hunting is conservation and making sure right, that, right. um, you know, the wildlife and animals that we're uh, hunting and, and consuming, they're there for our kids, uh, for the next generation. Um, you know, there are places in the world where you can hunt uh, and sell meat. Uh, you know, Europe, for example, um, Newfoundland in our own country, you're allowed to, um, you know, shoot a moose and, and sell it in a restaurant. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it's something that, you know, I would like to see happen in Ontario, um, but it would need a lot of, of, uh, of regulations and, and I think a little bit of research to, to figure out, you know, the best way to implement it. Um, you know, because I think everyone has the right to eat wild food whether it's uh wild salmon uh you know wild mushrooms these things are are available for sale um and you know unless you are a hunter or a a friend of a hunter like i can gift wild game meat to a friend uh, or family member um but you know if you don't have a direct connection to a hunter um you really can't you can't find wild game anywhere so i think i think people have a right uh you know to be able to eat you know wild food and it's natural state um but i i just think there needs to be uh you know a lot of rules and regulations around how that would happen one of my colleagues said you're talking to michael hunter you gotta ask what he thinks about all this craze of eating bugs and i said what do you mean there's not a craze of eating bugs and he said yes people are trying to get us to eat it every single day there's a mad push for it and i said no there's not he said google news it google it. and i said okay fine and i found out just in the past couple days uh michael i see bbc headline the edible insects coming to a supermarket near you and then there's an opinion column yeah. <laughs> uh, more people are eating bugs but is it ethical to farm insects for food and i, and I got to wondering eating bugs i mean I'm, I'm sure the vegans aren't doing it but it's also not what you think of when you think of a meatitarian you know they, they don't have the the McBug yet at McDonald's. What is your perspective on eating insects? <laughs> um, I don't have any interest in it, to be honest with you. It's, uh, <laughs> Good, me too. <laughs> it, uh, it, you know, seems like a trendy fad kind of a, a, a diet. Um, you know, is it going to solve world hunger? I don't know. It's, um, you know, is it a great source of protein that, uh, you know, could definitely help aid um you know maybe some uh, some areas of the world that, that need protein um you know maybe i i don't know um but it's, it's definitely not something that i'm passionate about or um you know even i'm in, in, interested in you know i've i've eaten it, like a crispy barbecue kind of flavored grasshopper that kind of tastes like potato chips but um you know it was more of a kind of a joke uh kind of a gift or something but um you know it, it's not something that i'm you know interested or passionate about 
Let's talk about the pandemic now, COVID-19, how it affected your restaurant specifically, how it's affecting the restaurant industry, and perhaps the future of it. I know you've been vocal on this, vocal on social media, talking to media outlets about it. Obviously, March 2020, things were shut down. Your business was closed by order of government for quite some time. And by some indicators, well, I know Ontario, where you're based, has had some of the strictest COVID rules really in the world, uh, depending on you know particular parameters. And yet we're in October 2021, and, and your business actually still faces some restrictions. What has the past year and a half been like for you? Um, it's been absolutely devastating, uh, you know, emotionally, mentally, um, you know, from a physical standpoint of the restaurant, devastating. Um, it, uh, it has just been an absolute nightmare. Um, you know, I never thought I would see the day where, uh, you know, the government steps in and tells us we can't run our business and, and make a living. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, beyond frustrated with, uh, the Ontario government, um, and its treatment of the restaurant industry. Um, you know, to this day, uh, you know, the current news that, uh, sports venues are opening back up to full capacity and the restaurants within these sports venues and the Air Canada Centre and Sky Dome are able to open to full capacity. But my restaurant uh, on Dundas that seats 45 people is limited to half capacity. Um, you know, we cannot make a living off 22 seats. Um, and it is just, uh, you know, frustrating, uh, you know, beyond belief. It's really quite something that the restaurant industry in Ontario in particular so hard hit for so long. And I know there were moments when people thought uh, there would be uh, breakthroughs and so forth. The government turns around and they say, well, no, we, we did we did well by always telling people, oh, order takeout and go do pickup and get delivery and so forth, support local and so forth. Did you feel like that helped? Our takeout sales... Um were uh, a fraction of our uh, in-house, you know, dining room sales. I don't um, think people are willing to spend the same kind of money they are uh, for takeout that they are when they go out. Um, alcohol, uh, you know, takeout alcohol sales was uh, almost non-existent. Um, you know, because of our, you know, liquor laws, I have to buy, uh, you know, spirits from the lcbo um as a restaurant i don't get a discount you know mm. a volume discount or um you know any kind of a discount as a restaurant buying liquor from the lcbo um so then to try and uh, mark it up to make a living um you know nobody wants to spend more for alcohol when they can get it for cheaper right. at the lcbo so um you know that didn't really work um you know there are some wines that we can buy directly from the vineyard um, that's not available at the LCBO, which we tried to push. Um, but, you know, we're not moving the same volume um, that we would if people were uh, dining in-house. Um, you know, for us, game is not something people cook at home. I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're so successful and busy at the restaurant is because game is something that, you know, people don't cook at home. And it's 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 something kind of new that they can't. They can't get it home and that's why they come to antler so um you know uh take out you know stuff for for people to take home just for us wasn't um i don't think was as popular um and it yeah it, it definitely you know when we looked at our sales it was literally like 
um, uh, you know, like a tenth of our of our sales, um, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, versus takeout sales. Perspectives have been so varied this past year and a half. There are some people who have basically said, uh, you know, they wanted things to be open for it to basically be, you know, buyer beware, make your own informed choice. I certainly lean towards that. You know, okay, if people feel they need to stay home, they can stay home and let other people uh, make their sort of shopping and culinary choices uh, informed and, and you know, take personal responsibility. And I understand there'll be precautions in place. So I was supportive of, of restaurants and all facilities being open much sooner and much larger. Other people saying, oh, no, you know, we can't do it. It's not safe. And I even saw people in the restaurant industry were of, were of split view. I understand there were people, restaurateurs, who were, yeah. didn't even want to open their own restaurants and so forth. And you go, okay, fine, each to yeah. their own. Yeah. How did you feel about just the, the timing of it all? Because I appreciate you're still frustrated with those capacity restrictions right now. And I, I get you. They're completely indefensible. I don't know why the government's doing that. At the same time, uh, there were periods where people were, were really split on all of it. What would you have liked to have seen happen uh, differently? Um, well, for me, I think it really started with our federal government. Um, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, cooking with a friend um, for a festival when, when COVID hit. And I was just completely shocked by the lack of action by our government. Um, when I landed in Saudi Arabia at the end of February um, 2019, I was greeted with temperature checks, uh, a vigorous passport check of the countries I had been, the reasons I was traveling, why I was there. Um, there were police checkpoints when I was leaving the airport. It was very strict. All for COVID this measures. Was all for COVID measures. And this was just at the end of February. So this wasn't even March, um, you know, when it was really full blown. Um, when I got back to Canada, I think I arrived about a week before the uh, shutdown and quarantine measures. When I got back to Canada, uh, I think it was March 10th or somewhere around there, um, uh, there was zero uh, COVID measures at the airport at uh, YYZ Pearson. Other than a piece of paper with a checkmark box uh, that said, have you been to Wuhan, China? So <laughs> um, I think <laughs> there was, uh, you know, a massively delayed uh, COVID response in Canada for travelers. I think we let a lot of the uh, cases in, uh, you know, with open arms at our border. Um, I think, uh, you know, the length it took for us to procure vaccines was really uh, uh, played a part in why we were shut down for so long. Um, you know, did the lockdowns work? Do we need lockdowns? Um, you know, it's a really complicated issue. I'm not a medical expert. Um, all I can say is it you know really hurt our business. And Would you have stayed open was, if there hadn't been lockdowns? If the government had said, okay, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, that some restaurants were closing sort of voluntarily, what would you have done? Yeah, no, 100%. I would have, I would have uh, wanted to stay open. Okay. Um, you know, I think, you know, the safety measures we put in place with, uh, you know, sanitizing, uh, masks, um, you know, the, the plexiglass barriers and divider we put up, um, you know, I, I, I think that would have kept uh, our diners safe, um, you know, especially if you're dining out with members of your old household. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the difference is, um, you know, from going to the store um, to buy groceries versus going to a restaurant to sit down and have a meal. Um, 
you know, for, for me, I, I, I would have preferred to have stayed open. Right now, restaurants and, and all other locations that are uh, relevant to the vaccine passport that have to have the vaccine passport in place, they are the ones who are tasked with enforcing this when asking people, show your papers, as the saying goes. I've definitely heard from some places. Yeah. I, I, was in a, I was in a fast food restaurant uh, with my kid. I won't name the specific place or location, um, but the, the lady who was tasked with enforcing these duties, and this is one of the world's largest restaurant chains, uh, she did not ask people for passports. And I heard her talking to some regulars and she just said, you know, I used to love my job. Uh, you know, I'd see everyone smiles and so forth. And now oh, I just, it's awful. And I have to badger people for this and that. And nobody likes it and so forth. And she just wasn't asking for it and so forth. I found that really telling. I mean, there's clearly a lot of frustration from people about, about basically, uh, Michael, you and your employees tasked with being the cops on this. It's, I think it's awful. Um, you know, I think the, the treatment of, of, uh, you know, people's rights is, is, uh, really scary. Um, I don't, I don't think it's fair that the restaurant industry again is being forced uh, to implement this uh, and police it um, and staff it. You know, it, it requires mm. uh, another staff member being paid to stand at the door to look at people's vaccine papers. Um, and the government is not supporting that. They're not paying for that, but they're making the restaurant industry pay for it, um, you know, literally. So, um, you know, I, I myself am vaccinated. Um, you know, I take medical advice from my doctor um, and not politicians. So, um, you know, it was my choice and my family's choice to, to get the vaccine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to people that maybe don't want it, um, you know, or maybe they have health reasons or medical reasons or religious reasons, whatever they are. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we need to honor those freedoms that, that you know, people have or should have um so it's it's kind of scary and you know before the vaccine passport you know we were our vaccination rates were in the 80s right. so you know i think um yeah i think i think it's overkill um i just saw in the news today that uh there's four or five hundred cases in toronto uh, of people that have covid uh and 130 of them are vac double vaccinated so um you know, whether these vaccines are working or not, um, you know, I guess time will tell, but it's, it was kind of surprising for me to see, um, that, you know, out of 500 cases, 130 of them are double vaccinated, which doesn't make me feel very good, but, um, you know, I guess time will tell as to what's going to happen in the future. One thing that's frustrated a lot of people is that technically restaurant staff, and, and I won't just put this on restaurants, other facilities that uh, have to do the vaccine passport, their employees and staff technically do not need to be vaccinated so don't need it you can walk into work and you can be in the environment for a whole eight hour yeah. day or 10 hour shift or what have you you're not vaccinated yet for somebody to come in and you know have a quick uh, app and cocktail or what have you they got to show the papers and i know there's a split opinion i mean my perspective would be well if the employees don't have to do the passport i don't have to do the passport and then the other perspective is there's some people going oh no i, I can't go into a restaurant because i don't know the status of the employees you know, I think that if people are nervous about going out, they should stay home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, that's just uh, the way I feel. I think it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, there are laws about people needing to be vaccinated to go into a restaurant and then the staff in that restaurant don't need to be vaccinated. It's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not saying that I think our staff should be vaccinated uh, by any means. 
but you know what what's really showing is these laws don't make sense and i don't think there is a lot of science behind some of these laws um i think governments are trying to make it look like they're doing something uh, without actually having to do anything one of the things i find though is is once you once you actually get into the establishment, whatever it is, you you know, you're watching the kids' hockey game, you're at the movie theater, uh, you're at the restaurant, I find most people are actually pretty chill. I know public polling says, yes, they support this, yes, they support that, and so forth, but it's also like people are relaxed, and I wonder if the people who are freaking out saying, why aren't the restaurant staff vaccinated? I mean, you know, to your point, maybe those people should stay home, and maybe they're just this sort of extreme vocal minority who, who, who make disproportionate social media posts. I mean, how have you found it? Uh, reopening the restaurant after the latest, uh, you know, reopening several months ago, um, has, you know, has it been a positive atmosphere? People just been showing up and, you know, having drinks and, mm -hmm. and happy to be there. Yeah, it's great. And, um, you know, people are very happy to be there. And, and um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of kind of jokes and laughter around, uh, you know, people finally getting out of the house and, and going out for dinner. So, um, you know, we found it's been very positive and, and a lot of fun, uh, you know, reopening. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, pandemic kind of problems that we haven't touched about is, is uh, staff. Um, right. A lot of our staff, all of our staff that we had pre-pandemic left the city. Uh, our general wow. manager and his wife moved home to Halifax. Um, uh, our dining room manager um couldn't afford to live in Toronto anymore and uh and sold their condo and moved to Pickering um where you know they sold a little condo and uh exchange for a big house <laughs> our bar manager um same thing went to go work uh in another industry uh because he couldn't survive off of um off of the CERB um and you know all of our our uh you know hourly staff that are you know generally a, a little bit younger, more kind of in their 20s, um, moved home or moved to cities where they could afford rent. So um, virtually all of our staff uh, left the city. Um, and, you know, upon reopening, it's been very difficult to, to find staff. Uh, we've had to raise all of our um, uh, wages, uh, you know, above what they were and above, um, you know, there's a minimum server wage. Um, and we've opted to you know pay our servers more to try and entice people to come and, and work with us um, but it's it's one of our biggest challenges right now is uh, labor we haven't talked about inflation but i'm sure uh the actual goods that you're dealing with there the the cooking supplies so, so you mentioned you got to pay the person to to check the passport you've got the supplies uh you've got the labor costs going up and then you've got inflation to deal with it seems like pretty much on on every end you're being squeezed our ingredient costs are spiking um um, canola oil has almost tripled in price. Um, so we wow. use that to fill our deep fryers. Uh, a lot of our cooking is done with canola oil. Um, uh, so that has spiked and is a huge cost. Um, I think the main problem is the gas prices have, uh, you know, spiked with the carbon tax. So, right. um, you know, all of the farmers using fuel to, uh, you know, produce these goods has gone up. Uh, you know, they raise their price. Um, the delivery company that's bringing it to us is raising their price for fuel. Um, and then by the time we get it, um, you know, it's inflation. So, you know, prices from all, all of our ingredients across the border going up. Um, not just, uh, you know, not just, you know, canola oil. One of the things I lament so much when I see an independent shop 
a restaurant go out of business, as many have done during the pandemic, is that this is what makes our communities unique. This is what makes them communities. When you say, oh, you're going to Manhattan for the first time, you're going to Toronto for the first time, no one says, you got to try the McDonald's at Times Square. You got to try the McDonald's at King and Spadina. It's fantastic. They say, you're going to Toronto. You got to check out Michael Huntler's Antler Kitchen. It is just great. They give you the list. These are the top. This is the art gallery you got to go. These are the two restaurants and so forth. And I, I, I worry about the degree to which the future of our restaurants is also the future of our communities. It's the future of our cities. Where do you see this headed? Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I would hope that our economy bounces back. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, staff come back and the restaurant industry comes back, um, you know, but I think time, time will tell. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely scary uh, to think about, but, you know, I uh, have faith and, you know, we've survived. A lot of other restaurants have survived. Um, you know, it might be a good opportunity for, uh, you know, rent opportunities to, uh, you know, rent subsidies and, and or not subsidies, but um, you know, the price of renting uh, space in Toronto, hopefully that will go down and entice more restaurants to come back. Uh, you know, we'll see. Michael, I know you're always trying new things. You have the cookbook, you're working on interesting new recipes. Uh, tell me, what's what's in the pipeline? What's coming up for you? Um, I am working on a second book. Um, uh, I'm doing a lot of work in the sort of outdoor space. Um, right now that, um, I focused a lot on during the pandemic because my restaurant was closed, uh, I had to lay myself off, um, you know, during the re reopening and selling takeout for the year, um, I still was on half my salary. So I was, um, mm. kind of branching out and writing recipes for, uh, outdoor brands, um, you know, when, when it, when it comes to game and wild fish and things like that. So, um, I've, I've really been, you know, pushing hard to work um in the outdoor community um so i'm, I'm continuing and um you know that work as well um and then uh you know we're going to be continually continually um you know trying to grow antler so we're we're um you know pre-pandemic we were looking at expanding um i think now uh you know we're trying to figure out again what what we can do to grow awesome stuff michael hunter thanks so much for joining us on the podcast to tell your story i really appreciate it thanks so much for having me it's been a lot of fun Full Common is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Common on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.